Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Small Town Fam. It's Yardley. I hope you're well. We love that you're here. Today's case is told by one of our favorite original guests, Detective Justin. It's a two-parter, yes, my friends, that starts out in Justin's small town in the same agency that Dan and Dave worked for. And at first, there are a great many more questions than there are answers. But Justin and his co-workers are dogged and more than willing to go wherever the investigation takes them. This is One Dark Night. Hi there, I'm Yardley. I'm Dan. I'm Dave. And I'm Paul. And this is Small Town Dicks. Dave and I are identical twins and retired detectives from Small Town, USA. And I'm a veteran cold case investigator who helped catch the Golden State Killer using a revolutionary DNA tool. Between the three of us, we've investigated thousands of crimes, from petty theft to sexual assault, child abuse to murder. Each case we cover is told by the detective who investigated it, offering a rare, personal account of how they solved the crime. Names, places, and certain details have been changed to protect the privacy of victims and their families. And although we're aware that some of our listeners may be familiar with these cases, we ask you to please join us in continuing to protect the true identities of those involved out of respect for what they've been through. Thank Thank you. you. Today on Small Town Dicks, we have the usual suspects. We have the one and only Paul Holes. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Changed it up. Changed it up. You did. You almost (laughs) caught me off guard. (laughs) I would say I have very little power over here. I try to wield whatever I can. We also have Detective Dan. Hello, Yardley. Hello, Paul. (laughs) Dave. Hey, Dan. Daniel. Good to have you. And we have Detective Dave. Hello to everybody, including Dan. (laughs) Uh, It never gets old. And small town fam, this is a big, big day. We are so pleased to welcome back to the podcast one of our originals and absolutely one of our favorites. Although now he has a promotion. He used to be Detective Justin. Now he is Sergeant Justin. As always, thanks for having me. It's so great to have you back, Justin. You always bring us extraordinary cases, so beautifully told. And uh, I'm just going to start the way we usually start. Tell us how this case came to you. So this started uh, it was over a year ago now. Um, it's February in our small town, and it's a day off or night off where I'm at home, and my phone goes off, which has happened on a handful of cases I've been on for. And the phone rings, and it's my boss, and I know what that means. I just don't know what the details are yet. 
and answer the phone call, get super limited information. I think I'm just waking up. So, you know, trying to rub the sleep out of my eyes and process why my phone's going off. And that conversation, you always look back at it and you're like, I don't remember any of it other than you're going to work. And so briefly, you knew something about a, a deceased subject, but I wasn't super clear. Anyway, got out of bed, got dressed and was driving in. And then there's usually a follow-up phone call now that you're awake where you remember the details. I think it's the same information exchanged, but at least this time you're starting to retain that information. And so I call my boss back, Sergeant David. Good old Sergeant Dave. He was my boss too. Yep. And he explains a little bit more as to what we're coming in on and where we're going. And what's weird is the scene is in a community garden in our small town. And so it's a pretty big location outside with greenhouses and then open air crop type stuff that the community tends to. And uh, it's probably three or four acres kind of surrounded by residential neighborhood. And this community garden, you can, for instance, rent a plot and grow vegetables or no, that's not what this community garden is. No, it's a community garden that you can go and just grab stuff from. Like free vegetables kind of thing? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's adjacent to a big apartment complex there, and then there's a neighborhood that surrounds it. Does the city maintain this garden? No, it's a community. You don't rent a plot and go, I'm going to grow squash this summer? Nope. Okay, cool. Total community environment, and people come and go and work on it, and we're there not often, but it's kind of a cut through for the neighborhood. Like Dan was saying, the apartment complex shares a fence line. And so people are constantly cutting through to get from kind of the apartment side of the neighborhood back into the residential portion of the neighborhood. And in all honesty, I'm thinking somebody went back to the garden to kill themselves. But, you know, it's the only thing that really makes sense in my three or four in the morning, fresh out of sleep brain is, you know, somebody went back there to hurt themselves. Justin, are you assigned you're in investigations at this point? I am. Yep. I'm one of our four major crimes detectives at this time. And so I'm working back in our investigation services division assigned to basically violent person crimes at this point. And so myself, my partner, and then my boss, Sergeant David, are the three people that get called in to help our patrol guys with this call. So there's a dead body in this community garden. Yep. And that's it. And that's pretty much all I know leading up to arriving on scene. By chance, I'm the first of the detectives to get there and meet with our patrol officers who've been there for quite a while. And so it takes me 45 minutes, maybe an hour to get on scene. So I'm there relatively quickly and they show me kind of the lay of the land and where things are at in this garden, specifically the body. He was sitting at the base of a tree with his back rested against the tree and didn't look all that out of place other than it's the middle of the night and he's clearly dead. I'm thinking, you know, this guy came to the garden, found a tree, sat down and shot himself. Can you see a wound anywhere on the body? You can. You can tell he's been shot in the head, but exactly where and how without moving the body around, we don't have that level of investigation yet. But just initial appearances, he's clearly been shot in the head, which is a common occurrence when we see suicides. I start noticing that there's not a gun laying right next to him or in his lap or in his hand, which is unusual. Usually that's pretty present and visible when you get to these, but not uncommon that, you know, they hasn't fallen under the body or they're sitting on it. Weird things can happen with that. I'm there walking the scene a little bit. And mind you, our patrol officers have been there for over an hour probably at this point. And as we're just kind of looking around, one of our patrol officers 
his flashlight happens to shine just right and finds a shell casing in the gravel of the kind of the driveway area that's probably 30 or 40 feet from where the body's at. So this area, is it a high crime area? Do you have lots of shootings in this area? It's busy. For our, our small town, it probably has the highest incidence of shootings in our area. Not necessarily the garden, but the surrounding neighborhood is fairly high density as far as the population goes. Apartments, small homes, duplexes. The garden area doesn't have street lights around it. It is completely dark. It looks like a campground in the middle of the night out in a very rural area. The surrounding area has a series of large apartment complexes that when you hear a call come out, you know it's one of these three apartment complexes. If they give the numbers, every officer knows which address they're going to. So a high frequency of order maintenance type calls like disorderly conduct, intoxicated subject, fights, neighborhood fights and domestics. We have a mall nearby. Often we have, you know, a shoplifting gone bad where that turns into, we call it a robbery because it's, you know, a pushing fight between loss prevention and the suspect and the suspect flees on foot and they inevitably run to these apartment complexes or this residential area, which is, I would say, a 10 block radius is responsible for over half of the crime in our city. Yeah. The unique thing about this neighborhood is this community garden, if you cross the street to the east, then you're actually in the county. So that street right there is a barrier between the city and the county. Our city is unique. We have little pockets that are covered by the county sheriff and the larger part of the city is covered by us. So Justin, you were talking about a patrol officer just in doing kind of a, an area canvas has come across a shell casing. It's 30 feet-ish from the body. Can you describe the victim here? What's his name? The demographic? How old? Yeah. So at first, it was one of the complicating factors of this case is we don't know who the victim is even initially. And so once the process kind of plays out, the medical examiner arrives and we start doing some of the investigation as it pertains to the body itself, seeing the wound clearly, we're able to obtain some identification off the body. And by doing so, we're able to identify um, the victim is Larry. And Larry's in his late 50s, early 60s. He doesn't fit the demographic of the problems we have in that neighborhood. He's an adult, doesn't have a lengthy criminal history, but we're able to also determine that Larry has an RV and lives at the community garden. And so he's the caretaker, the night watchman, if you will, of this community garden. And so in exchange for being able to live there, Larry kind of keeps an eye on the place. And so we're kind of able to put that together as we are identifying him and going back through calls for service in our computer system. We find Larry's name associated as being a caller where he calls because someone's in the garden late at night with a flashlight and he's worried they're stealing something from the tractors or tampering with the crops or doing whatever it is. He's been a caller on a handful of cases. And so we're able to start building a picture of how Larry plays a role in this community garden that we're dealing with. And so with that, we're able to understand that he belongs there more than just that's where he happened to die. So the question starts to become, was anyone else there? And this shell casing is far too great a distance away from the body for it to be a Larry shot himself and this shell casing ends up as far away as it did. It just, it doesn't happen. It's when it, the case kind of changed in my mind to, no, this one, this is different. 
hair on the back of your neck kind of stands up and you get that feeling that there's something more to this. And it's a good thing that we're here because we got some work to do. So how did the call come in? How was Larry discovered? So Larry was discovered. He has family in the area and they hadn't heard from him in quite a while. And so they reach out to some friends. Hey, can you swing by and check on Larry? And so they go up to this garden to check on him. And as they make their way up towards where he has his RV set up and his kind of fenced in yard space, they're able to see him seated at the base of the tree. Um, and as soon as they see him, they realize he's not responsive. They initially called thinking it was a medical situation. And so they call for assistance and our patrol officer there first and see that Larry's deceased. The scene's just kind of held and secured at that point. So the biggest problem in this case is we have no idea who the suspect is. No clues, no anything that would guide us to learning that. We've canvassed the neighborhood the best we can. Hey, did you hear anything, see anything? Nope, nothing, nope, nothing everywhere we went. And same with his family, right? They're like, no, Larry has no enemies. He's a good fellow. Yeah. They surmised that, you know, if anything, it'd be somebody he caught in the garden after hours, but they didn't think it would lead to some kind of altercation that would result in somebody getting shot. Larry knew enough about how to interact with folks that he would just observe, call the police, let us respond. So no one could really wrap their head around why this one was different. And in terms of 911 calls saying, hey, I just heard a gunshot. Did anything like that come in? Nothing. Nothing available to us that's going to isolate the time of this. So Larry has been shot in the head and head wounds usually bleed a lot. Is there blood everywhere at this crime scene? So he's kind of slumped down as he's sitting back against a tree and there's blood on the back of the tree kind of behind where Larry's head would have been if his head was upright, but he's kind of slumped over. And so it's hard to tell exactly at this point where the entry wound or if there is an exit wound or not, but you can definitely tell that it's a head wound. And based on the amount of blood, a pretty significant one. And is there a trail of blood at all or is it all just right there where Larry's body's found? It's all right there. Um, the only blood that's not on him or his person is on the tree that he's sitting up against. Again, where his head would have been leaned back as he's sitting there. So just a little bit of transfer on the trunk of the tree, but then everything else is on his person. So in these situations, we're waiting for the medical examiner to show up on scene before we can put hands on and manipulate the victim. So there's not a whole lot patrol and detectives can do with this scene until the medical examiner shows up. So you're doing a lot of hurry up and wait, walk the area, see if you can find cameras, see if you can find additional shell casings, see if this is maybe a robbery where we have a trail of property that's leaving the area. So there's some time in between the medical examiner showing up and when you actually make the call, you can do some other things. Feels like it takes forever as you're in that waiting phase because you want to go, 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 go. And especially as you start to realize that this is not just a suicide. And so there's three or four different things we're doing all at the same time. We're waiting. We're trying to answer the questions that are going to become important for the criminal case. Who did it? Why did they do it is a big one. And that's oftentimes the hardest one to answer is why. That's the hardest one, I think, for families not to be able to have answered for them is, you know, why did this happen? They want to know why. 
oftentimes in crime shows and in true crime sort of across the board, there's a lot of talk of closure. But what I really learned from talking to Dan, Dave and Paul is there's no such thing as closure, but there is such thing as answers. And it's really, really important. So in all the calls that Larry's made to the police department, you know, about trespassing or whatever leads Larry to call the police. Is there any indication he's got some enemies out there because he's so cooperative with the police? No, nothing that we can find. Again, it's kind of that two different demographics. Larry, semi-retired, if you will, living at the community garden, keeping an eye on things, calling about our younger 20-year-old males that are out, you know, at 3 a.m. running through the park, running from the police and things like that. I'm sure they don't like Larry calling the police when they come through the park, but there's never any indication in the calls that he called anyone so many times that they had a vendetta against him or would have any ill will towards him. Most of the calls, they probably didn't even know Larry called because we would get there, find who we were looking for and how we got there and how we found them was never really a super important part of the case. But there was never a time where he confronted somebody and there was a dispute or a fight. And Justin, is Larry dressed like in pajamas or is he like in just normal attire? So kind of a hybrid of both. It looks like he'd probably been in bed, heard something, and then gathered himself to go outside. And again, it's February timeframe, so it's cold out. And so he had sweatpants on and then several hooded sweatshirts on. Larry happened to have his identification card on him. And my best guess is he put on the clothes he had on the day before and his ID just remained in the same pocket that it was in. I don't think it was a conscious decision to grab it. Lucky for us. Interestingly, as he's seated at the base of this tree, with him was a flashlight and then his cell phone was present next to his body. Not unusual things to have next to somebody necessarily, especially the cell phone, but we're starting to kind of paint this picture of what his role at the garden is. And so I walked circles around the scene and expanded and walked through greenhouses looking for cameras in the garden itself. Um, And there were none. Looking for shoe prints, tire tread prints. So I make lap after lap after lap and don't notice anything super noteworthy. And so the medical examiner's office finally arrives. And now we're for the first time really able to start getting our hands on Larry and looking at the body and we're able to see this wound. And what's interesting as we start examining Larry is the wound, rather than where you typically see, you know, self-inflicted gunshot wounds, Larry's wound is almost centered above his nose, just above his eyebrows and the kind of the lower portion of his forehead, just above his right eye. It's a unique location to have a self-inflicted wound. Why is that unique? I think it's just the position, how you would have to hold the weapon to do it. More typically, we see on the side of the head for self-inflicted. Yeah, in the mouth, under the chin. I think I've seen one time a suicide with a gun that they shot themselves in the heart. But I've never seen a gunshot wound like the center of the forehead between the eyes. I've seen them in murders, but never in a suicide. When you're early on in the case and you're taking a look at the entry wound is in the middle of the forehead. This is where, you know, when you have experience in working these cases, you go, okay, now, you know, the seesaw kind of tips towards, well, this is more consistent with homicide until... I get more information to indicate suicide. Having somebody like Justin out there who's working violent crimes, you know, he's going, okay, we need to take this step by step at this point. Yeah. If I see a wound like that, I would expect that to be immediately fatal. 
or at least debilitating where you're not going to be crawling from where that shell casing was 30 feet away. So I would expect to see a gun right there. If there was any sort of wound and crawling to get to a new position, certainly I should see some biological trace evidence like blood showing where the initial impact of that bullet occurred. Also, if the distance is very close or tight contact, all the gases from the firearms discharge gets forced into that wound. And oftentimes, you'll get stellate tearing around the wound to indicate, okay, somebody had a gun pressed up against the head. Whether it's a suicide situation or whether you have a homicide where now they're pressing it and all those gases go in. And those gases need to go somewhere. And depending on the round, depending on the gun... They can escape out through the entry wound and do a stellate tear. Or if you're dealing with a very high-powered round like a 357 or a 44, now you have a massive exit wound with the head exploding in essence. Paul, what's a stellate? What's that? When you look at an entry wound for a bullet, it's going to be relatively circular or oblong depending on how it enters into the body. But the margins of that entry wound are whole. You know, you see some abrasions. It gives indication of how the bullet entered into the wound. But with the gases escaping out that wound, you have, in essence, like a burst effect. And now the wound itself takes on a star shape where it's torn So it tells me whoever shot this person, whether it be the person themselves or somebody else, they were right there. So stellate refers to that star shape wound. Exactly. Yes. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, folks. Detective Dave here. Let me tell you about Simply Safe, the home security system that I trust to keep my family safe. I depend on Simply Safe to provide me and my loved ones with 360 degree coverage of my property and valuables. I love the variety of monitoring sensors available with Simply Safe Home Security. You get a glass break sensor, which in my experience is one of the most effective tools of detecting a break in. In addition, Simply Safe offers motion sensors, entry sensors, sirens, and flood and fire detection. With Simply Safe Home Security, I have the flexibility to use keypads at multiple entries at my house. This option is especially important to me and my family. I can provide access to people I trust and limit having multiple keys outside of my control, all at the push of a button via the Simply Safe app. It comes with a variety of cameras for indoors and outdoors. 
And best of all, Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than $1 a day. It gives me peace of mind knowing I can leave the house, I can leave town, I can even leave the country, and I know my home is Simply Safe. The mobile app integration makes it so easy to make sure everything's in place in real time. I check it every day when I'm away from home. Simply Safe is the best. U.S. News and World Report names Simply Safe Best Home Security Systems 2024. And Newsweek ranked it Best Customer Service in Home Security. With Simply Safe, there are no contracts. And if you're not happy with the service or the product, they have a 60 day money back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind. We want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/smalltown. That's simplysafe.com/smalltown. There's no safe like Simply Safe. So Justin, the medical examiner now has the body and you now have this shell casing that was 30 or 40 feet away from the body, but there are no cameras around anywhere and it's not a neighborhood, it sounds like, where people are eager to talk to law enforcement. So what's your next step? How do you do it? So we finish the initial assessment of Larry's body with the medical examiner on scene. There'll be a full autopsy conducted later on. So we have to wait for that to happen. But as we're conducting this initial assessment and evaluation of the body, Larry had his hood on of his sweatshirt. And as we were starting to move stuff around, I'm holding a flashlight for our medical examiner. And I see kind of a metallic flash in the light until the medical examiner stopped. And we kind of manipulate the hood back a little bit. And the slug that has traveled through that forehead wound um, has come out of exit wound on kind of the backside of Larry's head and has been caught in the material of the hood of his sweatshirt. So there's a fairly pristine 45 caliber slug caught in his hood of his sweatshirt. All the detectives are nodding eagerly like, yes, yes. Well, it's much better to do that than have to dig it out of the tree. Because that it would probably be mangled if it was in the tree. Yeah, and now you can confirm that the shell casing matches the caliber of the bullet you pulled off the victim. So you can either assign relevance to that shell casing or it becomes, well, we've got a shell casing here, but it's probably unrelated to our shooting. And is this a full metal jacket round? It is, yep. So typically, you know, 45s, you know, they're obviously it's a large caliber, but they're big, slow-moving bullets. This bullet, whether it be because the tree was a backstop or even just the hood, it got caught. And because it was full metal jacket, these 45s have a tendency to stay very intact versus if you have a hollow point where it's designed to spread out the jacketing, which contains the marks that the firearm leaves on the side of the bullet that can be used to identify the firearm that shot it. The firearm is the tool. And so you need to match that bullet back to that tool. Firearms examiners drool when they get this type of evidence. What does that mean, full metal jacket? Ammunition, firearms ammunition comes in a variety of different configurations. Back in the day, ammunition was just a lead round, just a solid lead object. And then they started coating these lead rounds with a copper jacket. It's a harder material. It helps keep that lead intact. And that's what we call full metal jacket. 
The hollow point, the tip of the bullet, basically is the exposed lead. And this is a type of round, the way it's designed is that when it hits its target, let's say the human body, lead is so soft that when that tip hits, that lead starts to deform and expand. And in part, it's to try to enhance the wounding, but it also limits the chance that that round is going to overpenetrate and pass through the person or the target you're trying to shoot and then hit somebody you don't want to hit. And so that's why law enforcement almost exclusively in terms of their sidearms use hollow point rounds. It's to minimize that chance that you hit something that's past the target you really are aiming at. Got it. That's a phenomenal lesson in ballistics. Now that you've manipulated the body and you've started to move the body around, you haven't discovered a firearm. Correct. So no gun. We now have a shell casing multiple feet away from Larry's body. And then we have the bullet, the slug itself that matches the caliber of that shell casing. So doesn't mean they're fired from the same gun, but I'm able to see enough on both, even at this early phase that I'm confident that our lab will be able to evaluate them and can't necessarily link one to the other. But if I'm able to find the gun that fired this round and killed Larry, they'll be able to look at both the casing and then the slug and tell me whether or not the gun I have is the gun that fired these rounds. So we've settled on this isn't a suicide. And so we decide rather than stay there and work through the next couple hours in the dark, we decide to just hold the scene. And so we leave detectives there to provide security with the idea that we're going to come back in the morning. When we start getting into Larry's campsite where his RV is, it's pretty secluded. There's a separate fence that separates the kind of living site that Larry lived in from the rest of the garden. And so the concern was there that if our suspect is another resident of Larry's RV, lives with him, somehow has an expectation of privacy, we're going to need to secure our search by applying for a search warrant. And so we had one of our detectives start writing a search warrant. We included the whole area both Larry's residence, his RV, and the entire community garden as a whole. So we get through Sunday, process the scene. We process Larry's RV, the rest of the area inside his fenced-in yard, but don't come up with anything that's significant. And then Monday morning, we do our Monday morning briefings. We go through everyone that was arrested since we were last in briefing. And there was an arrest that was read Monday because it happened early Friday morning before the weekend of a gentleman named Damon. And Damon got arrested up in the same general area, several blocks away from this community garden. Damon got arrested and had a handgun on him when he was arrested, which, oh, that's the same area, but we're talking Friday morning. We weren't out there until Saturday night into Sunday morning. The timeline doesn't work. We're a day off, so we move on. And what is Damon arrested for exactly? So he went to jail on warrants and had a, a firearm on him. They charged him with having the firearm and lodged Damon at jail. So Damon must be a felon if he's being charged with having a firearm. Yep. He gets released with a court date down the road. We seize and keep the firearm as evidence of him being a felon in possession of the firearm. And so we have this gun, but Damon's now out of custody. So... You know, again, the timeline doesn't fit. There's no way that's our guy. It's kind of weird, but we'll circle back if we need to. So we work through Monday and can't shake anything loose lead-wise. We go home Monday night after we leave for the day. My boss calls me and he goes, hey, 
I just got a call from a gentleman multiple states away. And this gentleman tells my supervisor, I got a call from Damon, who I went to high school with. And Damon told me he just shot a guy over the weekend. And so all of a sudden, this Damon name that the timeline was off means something now. Oh, shit. So Damon's good friend dimes him out. Yes. So my boss calls me, tells me all of this, like, hey, we've got a name. We got to pursue this. And so we come back into work because now our priority is finding Damon, really. And as we're doing that, we still have the gun that he was arrested with the day before we got a call about the body. Medical examiners conduct the autopsy by this point. Don't learn anything dynamic from that. Entry wound in the forehead, exit wound in the back of his head. Didn't appear to be close range. None of those signs were present. But how long ago could this death have occurred? So we want to know, you know, from the medical examiner's perspective, if it's even possible that Larry was shot and killed by Damon Thursday night into Friday morning before Damon was arrested with this gun. And they can tell us, you know, within windows of whether things are possible. But the one thing in talking to them about this case that we discussed is given the time of year, it's February, it's cold at night and it's cold during the day. And so with those details, they were able to render some guidance early on that, yeah, it was possible that Larry was shot more than a day before he was found. And so with that perspective, it totally changed the game. And now not only do we have a named suspect, but we have physical evidence that we're able to process to further link him to our case. Damon's not a local guy, so we don't know where he's at. And so we've got two things happening at once. So we have this gun. And so the phone calls and the rush requests start getting made to our forensic laboratory, which we share one with the entire state that we're in. And so they can be pretty backlogged. And so we're making arrangements to transport the gun that we had taken off of Damon Friday morning to the lab to compare with the casing and the slug that we recovered when Larry was found. At this point, we recontact our prosecutor's office and the question became, did we have a right or the authority to search and discover whether that firearm that we took off of Damon matches the casing and the slug that we found at the crime scene? I'm curious that that would even be a question because you consider Damon to be a viable suspect and he's a felon in possession of a firearm, which is illegal. So why is there a question about whether or not you're allowed to search or test that gun that you find on Damon? So a search is not just looking for something necessarily, but it also can categorize any time the government or the police invade somebody's privacy. And so the question is, does Damon have a right to privacy in the gun that he had on him? And it was debated at my office it was consulted with our prosecutor's office and debated over there. And no, we'll just process it like we would normally. And so off everything goes. It heads to the lab, all three items, the gun, the slug, and the casing. And Damon's already out of custody, correct? Correct. Damon got out of custody what would have been Sunday morning. He had very little local history. And so because he didn't have any negative local history, he was a low-risk release for them based on his warrants and charges. And so he got out that Sunday morning. 
So the pucker factor for you has got to be high because now your prime suspect in a homicide is out and about. You're waiting for the lab to come back with results. And you've got a tip that's coming in from a friend. You know, so Damon has associations out of state. You can't guarantee he's just going to be milling about in your town. He could be across the nation by the time you catch up with him potentially. Exactly. And that why question still unanswered. There's no known connection between Larry and Damon that we can find anywhere. And that adds some concern. It looks at this point that it was, you know, kind of a random act and stranger on stranger. So what else is Damon capable of if he's out and about? That plays in significantly to the links we went to to track Damon down. And that becomes our next priority is finding this guy. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So you're doing background stuff on Damon at this point, finding out where he maybe lays his head. And meanwhile, you're also waiting for ballistics to come back. Yep. And we get some information that he may be in a coastal town several hours from our small town. Damon's a pretty unique guy with some pretty distinct tattoos, some facial and neck tattoos that are going to stand out. And so the decision's made, we're going to the coast. And so we meet up with a small police department in this small coastal town where their whole police department, I think, is like 12 people total. So they have maybe one or two officers working at any given time. And we get up there, meet with them and explain, hey, this is who we're looking for. Do you guys have any ideas, you know, local problem houses, problem people? Do you guys have any informants? Most distinct tattoo was kind of in his hairline. His hair was fairly short and kind of a receding hairline, but then he had a kind of a widow's peak tattooed on his head. And so that was the most distinctive tattoo we're dealing with. Damon's got like the Count Chocula widow's peak tattooed onto his forehead. Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) It's not going to make it look like you have more hair, but (laughs) anywho. So we get to this small town and start looking and we hike different trails along the beach, looking at transient camps, asking people, showing pictures around. Fortunately, we had a fairly recent booking photo of Damon because he was just lodged in jail. So we had a photo that was only a few days old. So we're able to show that and we're not getting anywhere. We start kind of expanding our search and by chance we go into a sporting goods store kind of on the main drag in this small town, walk in there and, you know, get greeted like any small town with, Hey, can we help you? And we show them the picture and Hey, have you seen this guy? 
And the clerk says, yeah, he was in here yesterday. All right. So we start working on video, get their security footage and the security footage isn't super clear, but you could see enough. And in the tattoos for sure, confirm that it was our guy, Damon. What's he buying? He bought a pack of socks and mountain biking fingerless gloves. So nothing that would tell us or tip us off. You know, he didn't buy a tent and a sleeping bag or something that's going to like point to he's going to be out in the woods. It was socks and gloves. I was wondering if he was trying to buy another gun at the sports store, just replace the 45 that was uh, taken off of him. Yeah. And that was some of our concern was that he was going to try to access additional weapons. He shouldn't have been able to acquire the first gun that he had, but obviously didn't stop him. And so, you know, acquiring another one is going to be probably pretty high on his priority list if he's the type that carries guns around with him. And so we had that concern. And that's one thing that I want to point out is that the black market for firearms, for those who know how to access kind of the underground, if you want to get a gun, you can get a gun. Typically with these types of crimes, you're not going after the registered owners of firearms. You're going after people who know how to get the guns off the street. Right. And I'm thinking clearly this gun that was seized from Damon and taken into evidence didn't get flagged as stolen. Police officers would have made that determination out on the scene at the initial contact with Damon. When they come across the gun, they would have ran the serial number and the make and model of a gun against the national database to see if this gun is reported as stolen. So Damon came across it somewhere. Maybe it's an unreported burglary. Maybe it's a vehicle that got broken into. Or like Paul says, there are people out there that just have a stash of guns that if you know the right person to go to, you can get a gun, but you're not going through the same federal forms that you or I would have to go through to satisfy the legal purchase requirement. These are guns that are illicit paraphernalia. Yeah. So we're a day behind, Damon, but we don't have a whole lot of information. I mean, we know where he was 24 hours ago. Which is kind of a lifetime in police work. It is. And you think of the distance one can travel in 24 hours. You could be on the other side of the country in 24 hours time frame. So we spent a little bit more time in this small coastal town looking for Damon and don't really come up with anything. It's starting to get dark. We've got a several hour drive back to our small town when the local patrol officer that's with us, his radio goes off and there's a call on the main highway that runs along the coast of a hitchhiker that was being assaultive, combative, and pulling somebody out of their car on the highway. Then the description comes out, includes tattoos on his head and neck. And so everyone in the car perks up and we look at this local cop and he's like, yeah, we're going to go. And so we have one of the most terrifying drives in the near dark hours of the coastal highway with cliffs on one side and sheer drops into the ocean on the other. Going down this road at 100 miles an hour trying to get there, but we get there and there's a couple state patrol officers already on scene and they've detained the suspect. We walk up and it's clearly not Damon. There's facial tattoos, all sorts of tattoos, but it's not Damon. And we asked the local officer and he's like, oh yeah, that's so-and-so. That's the local guy who's the only guy in town with face tattoos and all of these things. And so, you know, we spend the ride back into town telling him it would have been nice to know that, that you had a guy in town that you deal with all the time that does this kind of stuff. He's a little bit crazy, uses meth. And it's probably him, not let us think we're heading to catch our murder suspect. Anyway, swing and a miss, we exhaust the resources in this small town. And so we head back to our town and I'm racking my brain on the, you know, couple hour drive back about what we can do to find Damon. And Damon called his friend in another state 
and he had to call from a phone number, right? Did we get that phone number? We had it. We hadn't really thought much of it. We were kind of in the active pursuit mode and wanted to go out and talk to people and pound the pavement. But we have a phone number that we've done nothing with. So let's see what we can get from the phone number. It's a burner phone. It doesn't come back as registered to anybody that means anything in the case. But we have no reason to believe that Damon doesn't still have this phone that he called his friend with. And so we start doing some investigation around you know, the phone itself. There's some resources available that can do some pretty cool things when it comes to technology and cell phones being part of that to give us not quite real time, but pretty updated, pretty specific information as to where phones may be, whether historical information or new, almost real time information. We still have some unknowns. We don't know that Damon still has the phone. We don't know that it was his phone. We just know that it's the phone number that was used to call Damon's friend in another state. So without anything else to go on, we head back to the coast, which is where the phone was showing to be located. This marks the end of part one of One Dark Night. But don't worry, small town fam, part two drops tomorrow. And in part two, Justin and his fellow law enforcement officers are hot on Damon's heels. But there's no way that we would stretch this case into two parts if Justin were able to wrap things up in the next 15 minutes. Suffice it to say, the best laid plans go awry. So we'll see you tomorrow for part two of One Dark Night. Small Town Dicks is produced by Gary Scott and Yardley Smith and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. This episode was edited by Soaring Bajan, Gary Scott, and me, Yardley Smith. Our associate producers are Aaron Gaynor and The Real Nick Smitty. Our music is composed by John Forrest. Our editors extraordinaire are Logan Heftel and Soaring Bajan. And our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, visit us on our website at smalltowndicks.com. Small Town Dicks would like to thank Speech Docs for providing transcripts of this podcast. You can find these transcripts on our episode page at smalltowndicks.com. And for more information about Speech Docs and their service, please go to speechdocs.com. And join the Small Town fam by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Small Town Dicks. We love hearing from you. And if you support us on Patreon, your subscription will give you access to exclusive content and merchandise that isn't available anywhere else. Go to patreon.com slash smalltowndickspodcast. That's right. Your subscription also makes it possible for us to keep going to small towns across the country in search of the finest, rare, true crime cases told, as always, by the detectives who investigated them. So thanks for listening, small town fam. Nobody's better than you.